Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. We are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So today we're going to take a slight departure and discuss a subject that affects all of us, that being mental health. According to Medical News Today magazine, mental health refers to cognitive, behavioral, and emotional well-being. It is all about how people think, feel, and behave. People sometimes use the term mental health to mean the absence of a mental disorder. Mental health can affect daily living, relationships, and physical health. That all sounds pretty straightforward, but as we know, life with its highs, lows, loves, and loss can challenge even the most centered among us at various times. When you factor in the traumatic events of the last few years, as well as the weekly nonstop stream of news, it's fair to say mental health is no longer something we can view apart from physical well-being. On that note, I reached out to someone I've known for several decades. Sally Gregg is a psychotherapist and clinical social worker providing psychotherapy for adults and children since 1995. Her primary focus and specialty is treating and diagnosing symptoms associated with depression, anxiety, panic disorder, and PTSD. She received a bachelor's degree at California State University and her graduate degree at USC. Her clinical training and internships were done at USC and UCLA. Sally works out of her office in Beverly Hills, California. She's born in Georgia, and Sally has been a resident of Los Angeles since her teens. She and her husband, Dr. Lloyd Gregg, are avid art collectors, longtime prominent residents of Los Angeles, and they are pillars of a wide swath of the community in Los Angeles. Their philanthropic endeavors and willingness to devote their time to issues affecting the community are well known. Their philanthropic spirit, I must say, also extends occasionally to restaurant investments. So thank you, Sally and Lloyd, for that. I have to say Lloyd, Sally, and their two daughters, Tanya and Gabrielle, are some of the finest people I've had the good fortune of knowing. So I'm grateful that Sally was willing to take a little bit of time from what is a pretty demanding schedule to join us today on the program. Sally Gregg, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Thank you, Brad. I'm pleased to be here. And I appreciate that wonderful introduction. My pleasure. It's all true. So get things rolling here, Sally, with a little restaurant terminology we call our short order questions. Let me ask you, what music are you listening to these days? I'm listening to a lot of jazz, some South American music. And some hip hop. I ventured into that, but I'm selective. And some R&B. I'm just mm-hmm. I'm, I'm all over the place. Yeah, depending on your mood, I guess. Exactly. Occasional yeah. classical music because it can be very calming and centering. Yeah. No, I hear you. I do too. How about the first thing in the morning? What do you drink? What's your morning beverage? Lemon water, and a cup of coffee to st- stimulate the nervous system. Get you going. So Sally, tell me the last great meal you had at a restaurant. Actually, I went to a restaurant about a month ago called Gwen on Sunset in East Hollywood near Highland. That's Curtis Stone, right? The chef? How was it? The steakhouse. Wonderful. Very pricey, but the food Mm. was delicious. It was great. 
Very cool vibe. Interesting clientele. Mm -hmm. Little east of uh, where you normally would hang out, probably, right? (laughs) Exactly. I actually love that area. It's nice to go someplace different, something a little more, I guess, I presume it's down to earth, but at the same time, it's very high end. (laughs) Yeah, very LA. How about a place you're looking forward to traveling to? I've traveled a lot, but there are places that I haven't gone to. I think the Netherlands, that's an area that I have not visited. Sweden right now, it may be perhaps a bit dicey, mm-hmm. but I think that's, and maybe the Galapagos. Okay. Yeah. Let's hope there will come a time when we feel a little bit better about traveling abroad. Anything that you're reading lately you want to share? I'm rereading some of James Baldwin's books that I initially read in college, you're really distracted by other things and you're reading for as an assignment. But I'm rereading it because I'm finding it, I'm more focused and it's just very intense, illuminating. And you recognize how many things remain the same. Right. And you can't go wrong reading a little Baldwin. I would agree. And a very interesting book I read that I just finished is by David Blight. It's about Frederick Douglass. It's called the Prophet of Freedom. It's his entire, it's like an 850-page book. When I got it, I thought, oh my goodness, this is going to take a long time. But when I started reading it, I could not put it down. It was just so fascinating, his journey and his ascendance to being extraordinarily worldly and well-known and his contribution to so many, so much progress in the in African-American community. Yeah, that, no question about his significance as a historical figure. So thank you, Sally. Let's jump in here. And I have to ask you about a revelation while doing a little research for today. You, Dr. Greg, and your daughter, Tanya, are all credited with background vocals on Lionel Richie's Good Time Anthem all night long. I didn't know this. (laughs) Lloyd is credited with chanting vocals, and you and Tanya with what's called gibberish vocals. So, I, I, and I also rewatched the video and I saw that Leela Rashawn was a featured dancer. I hadn't caught that before, but I think I know what chanting is, but tell me about gibberish vocals and provide a little context to you. How did Lionel recruit you? I think it was in the moment and you just think, oh, this will be fun. And then you're there and you are instructed to do something rather specific. <laughs> so uh, the gibberish was in an effort to mimic patois which I don't do very well at all. I've learned to understand it within the context of just understanding a lot about not just linguistics, but Latin. I was able to understand some bit of Patois through my understanding of Latin. I haven't taken that course in college. I was quite surprised to have Googled Dr. Greg and found the all night long video. And I actually have to credit my wife, Linda, because she, she pointed that out to me. But not surprising. I know the company that you roll with, so that's not surprising. Before we move on to heavier subjects, you and Dr. Greg have been married for a long time. How did you meet and what year anniversary would this be in 2022? This would be 50th anniversary. Oh, okay. This is a big one. It's a big one. It's a long time. goes by very quickly, it seems. We met, I was actually a junior in my undergraduate studies and I did a work study program and I was offered this job. I was offered a few jobs, but I took the one at the hospital because I could start late. In college, you're still wanting to be out and about and 
being on the scene. So I took the shift from 3 to 11 because I didn't have to get up early. And most parties or action didn't start until after 11 o'clock. So I met him. He had just come from Michigan as an intern. And that's how we met. And how did he, so who did you, were you introduced or did he just come up to you at, at the party? How did that work? Yeah, he just saw me. I had a job as answering the phone in the obstetrics ward. And that was his rotation in that department. He would stop and flirt with me. And then it continued. And then it continued. So finally. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> 50 yeah. years later. Happy 50th. I hope to see you and be able to toast up with you both. That's a big date. The last time I saw you, Sally, was a, a couple of months ago. We had a really lovely lunch on a rooftop in Century City. That was nice. We shared a glass of wine each and it was great to catch up. So how are you? How are you doing? I'm, do I'm doing good. I'm on vacation right now. So it's chill. Yeah, no, I'm doing fine. Excellent. Sure. So of the things that we discussed that day, you mentioned that you were doing some counseling for young dancers at, at Debbie Allen's Dance Academy, where I should also mention that you and Lloyd have served as board members in the past. I know that you and Norm and Debbie and Dr. Greg have been friends for a long time, and I have to thank them for introducing you both to me. That is Norm and Debbie introducing me to you and to Lloyd. I know that there's a new location. Shonda Rhimes helped Debbie and Norm with the, I think it's called the the Rhimes Performing Arts Center. Have you seen the building? Is it incredible? Yes, I actually went to the opening. It's really lovely. And I love the setting, the area of the city where they built it. It's great. It's really a very nice facility. Are they going to be doing concerts there as well as Debbie having her dance classes? Or what's going to be happening there? Yes, yes. They're doing maybe about... Four weeks ago, they had scheduled Arturo Sandoval. For some reason, it had to be rescheduled. But yeah, concerts like that, they'll be having. They'll be utilizing it for many social activities. Right. I talked to Norm recently and heard the number, and I know Gensler was involved in the, uh, the design. It just it looks like an incredible building. It's really stunning. It is. So can't wait to see it. So let's talk a little bit about the counseling of kids. I recently read this article in the New Yorker magazine. And the title was The Mystifying Rise of Child Suicide by Andrew Solomon. It was in April, one of April's issues of this year. And the article said, quote, the average age of suicides has been falling for a long time while the rate of youth suicide has been rising. Between 1950 and 1988, the proportion of adolescents between 15 and 19 who killed themselves quadrupled. Between 2007 and 2017, the number of children aged 10 to 14 who did so more than doubled. In 2020, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States, suicide claimed the lives of more than 500 children between the ages of 10 and 14, and of 6,000 young adults between 15 and 24. In the former group, it was the second leading cause of death. And this makes it as common a cause of death as car crashes. I mean, that those numbers, those trends just are crazy and troubling. And I know each case is different, Sally, but generally speaking, what's happening here with these trends? Yes, they are alarming and extraordinary, the numbers. Stress, increase in stress in our society is gearing towards the direction of more parents are not really available as much because you have two family 
incomes, and for the most part, both parents work, so children are not receiving that consistent presence and attention that is so grounding for a child and very important. That's part of it. A lot of school, within the school system, a lot of stress in that area, bullying, of course, but also performance-wise. In private school system, there's a lot of emphasis on academic excellence, which is okay, but the kids have less social time, less play time, less chill time. I find that a lot of these parents, I feel, overscheduled their kids. Every day there's an activity. Sometimes I have suggested maybe he wants to just go home and chill, you know, for a few hours before homework or before anything is required of him or her. I think that's part of it. And there's also this copycat trending situation in schools where in terms of body harm, cutting, I'm seeing that with a lot of adolescents, and just poor coping skills, poor frustration tolerance. There's a sense that everything should be immediate. There is no idea of the importance of being able to look forward to something, not having something happen immediately. The entitlement syndrome. I think overall kids are not, they're so unaware. They have this magical thinking. Sometimes I've even said to some of them, that's a terrible idea. You're going to grow up. You're going to grow through this. You should at least try to power through and see how things manifest as you get older. You become more independent. You're not subjected to the constant bombardment of whatever it is you're dealing with a parent that's being very critical or on your case all the time. And then I remind them, this is not playful. If you do this, you can't come back. You can't change your mind because kids are impulsive like that. Somehow, sometimes I see the eyes open. It's like, it's final. And then that with the stress of, recent stress of the environment and the virus, there's a great deal of hopelessness and the sense of a lot of insecurity around the future. If we're going to be here or the potential loss of parents, which is devastating to children. And they, I was watching a program on 60 Minutes the other night addressing the numbers of kids that have left homeless after the pandemic, where not only one parent have died, but both parents are gone and they're teenagers trying to manage a household. And right across the economic spectrum, the teenagers who, whose parents left them with the home and they're trying to figure out how to manage the financial responsibilities of a home let alone the emotional responsibilities of the younger siblings. So I think all of that plays a role. The kids not really understanding consequences. And in terms of parents who are on the lookout for concerning signs when they see a, a child is having some trouble processing their thoughts and dealing with some mental issues. I know I've read where the systems and therapists are just taxed these days, but what kind of resources are available to parents when they do think that? Where do you take a child when you think they're having some emotional problems? The first thing you do is to try to make an appointment with a professional to look at these issues. It always involves the family because most of the time it's something going on within the home. There's a lot of stress there. If it's at school, the parents are not necessarily listening or supportive or feel like they are at a loss of being able to manage the situation because they're not at school, they're at home. So that's a lot of it. 
I'm sorry, to go back mm-hmm. to your question, I lost mm-hmm. track for a moment, is mm-hmm. that you really have to, you, you got to reach out for help. And parents have to be willing to be humbled and not see it as their weakness. And not to start to internalize it, but deal with the problem at hand objectively. Because when people start to feel responsible, sometimes they go into denial and they don't want to really listen. Or I've had a lot of parents like that. When I call them, and suggest that there's some issues that need to be addressed. They'd like to put it back on the school or the teachers and want to deflect or deny, pass the responsibility on to someone else. I'm going to stay on this just for another question here. Rates of suicide are particularly high for children in foster care. In fact, three times higher, I read, than for children who live with their own families and without legal supervision. Foster rates at certain public schools in South LA are extremely high. I'm curious, what are the trends among Black kids? And talk a bit about how trauma can be generational and in particular for African Americans. Abandonment. Many kids growing up without knowing mostly their father. So they don't have a real support system or certainly not a male role model. Stress, environmental stress in neighborhoods where there is a lot of crime and they live with the constant trauma of uh, helicopters and people being killed, many times their friends. So a lot of violence and family violence as well as domestic violence as well as violence in the neighborhoods that they're growing up in. It's hard to get through that unscathed. And in terms of trauma, is it generational? Can that be passed on from parent to child if parent has experienced a traumatic life? To some extent, because if the trauma has not, if it's present and you still see it in your parent, you don't feel, you don't feel safe. You don't feel secure because parents, trauma usually leads to a lot of anxiety and sometimes depression, but always looking over your shoulder, not understanding what's going on and reactive, overreactive. So when children, they observe that, right? Part of parenting is modeling. They observe that. So you don't seem safe. So I can't feel safe either on the part of the child. So yes, it can be generational in terms of if it's not treated and parents haven't addressed it and worked through it, then just kids observing it. I'm going to read in your words what your practice does. So you say, I treat depression, anxiety, panic disorder, and PTSD. I do individual and couples counseling, utilize a combination of theoretical principles, psychodynamic, cognitive, behavioral mindfulness, and other holistic styles and approaches to treatment and healing. I attempt to match the presenting issues and personality with the appropriate clinical diagnosis and therapeutic goals. So a few things there stand out for me, Sally, I wanted to dig a little deeper on, and you just started to touch on it, but I'm curious, so what's the relationship between anxiety and trauma? Anxiety stems from trauma. It's always waiting and expecting the shoe to drop. So it creates a sense of nervousness and restlessness, not able to be present, anticipating something to come at you based on historical experiences. So to your point, if you live in a tough neighborhood or you're worried about the police or this constant state of that fight or flight reaction that we have, you stay in that. And that's not a healthy place to to be for the nervous system, right? No, because you're not present and it's hard to focus. So with schoolwork or anything else that's going on, that's why dance 
And after school activities are so important because kids get into it, they start to enjoy it, and they are able to dismiss or not dismiss, but forget about the environment for the time that they are there. And that helps to promote healing because they know that there are ways how they can get away from it, albeit for a short period of time. I think about, I used to play basketball and basketball is the kind of sport that you can't be fully engaged in and think about anything else. You constant movement, the ball, the players, and you lose yourself in that. And it is, there is a form of it's meditative in that regard. And I don't think I've ever been able to find anything else that quite takes me out of my head like basketball did, unless I'm really trying to meditate, which I have some success with and I don't always succeed, but there's some value in that. That's what you're talking about with the dancing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dancing, acting, whatever, running, athletic programs are very important because it helps to give kids a sense of joy and alleviate stress and worry about everything that's going on in their lives that is harmful, potentially harmful. By description of your practice, Sally, it sounds your goal oriented towards healing as opposed to the impression that some people have this impression that therapy just goes on forever. I know each case is different and some people require longer and some people have lifetime therapists and maybe they become friends. I don't know. But it just seems like you are really goal oriented towards finding the right solution for someone. Is that accurate to say? Yes. Yes. And sometimes therapists can become maintenance. Those are long-term situations that there's some people that prefer to work in that modality. I like to see progress because I don't see, if I don't see progress, I feel like my work is ineffective. And then I start to reassemble goals and find different directions to go. The longest patient I've had really is about 20 years. And this is an elderly person that started at 68. Now she's in her 90s. Now she can't really, she can't come in. And I couldn't go to her place because of, so we talk on the phone from time to time, but she's segued down developmentally. She's not as verbal a little exhausted, but she's always delighted when we get to talk. I'm sure. Does it start to approach friendship kind of relationship at that point, or is it always professional? I'm sure it's professional, but how does it, how do you look at that line? They do sometimes blend. It stems from someone feeling very comfortable with you and trusting mm-hmm. you. It's still therapeutic in that the person has a chance to vent about the ongoing stress with kids or the system or medical issues. So it's therapeutic in that way, but sometimes they want to see you as a friend. If that helps, I'm okay with that. But you can still maintain boundaries. That's important. Right, sure, of course. And you talk about mindfulness and holistic styles. Can you elaborate on those? There are people that sometimes find it hard to move, that they get stuck with their with their issues, with their problems, whether it's sometimes depression, sometimes anxiety, panic disorder. So mindfulness is reminding the person that when you, one definition of it is to remain present, to not lose sight of the moment. Don't futurize because that adds stress, because when you futurize, you're really thinking of things that can go wrong and how to move beyond the past to discard some of the emotional and physical trauma stemming from past, mostly childhood traumas. So mindfulness, it's not always meditating, it's walking. I do a lot of that. It's finding ways to distract yourself from the issues that are 
present in your life from conflict and people deal with a lot of insecurities. So mindfulness is being present. Meditation is just whatever you do in this meditative, being present, listening to music, things that you can do that does not require money because that's an issue more and more these days. So looking for other outlets, your stress that will distract you. Yeah, because it's the rumination, right? If you're, if you're, because I tend to do this. I mean, look in the past and think, oh, I wish I had gone left instead of gone right. And that's okay if it's a passing thought. But if you get stuck on that and you're ruminating and you're staying there, that's when you're having some problems. Absolutely. It holds you in place. You can't move on. with that. Yeah. And how complicated a process is matching the issues and personality with the appropriate clinical diagnosis and therapeutic goals? Is that the whole key to the thing? That's what I try to do. There are some clinicians that are strictly into illnesses or they're strictly behavior. I work with a diverse group population, always have. And so I recognize that some theoretical guidelines are not appropriate for certain issues or personalities or even levels of education. It's not elitist. It's just some people can't always comprehend concepts, can't relate them to their own personal struggles. So if someone comes in and they are not wanting to look back at the past, um, even though that to a great deal is why they're there, but they don't want to look at it because it's too, people say that it's too painful. I don't want to look back. What's the point? So I go where they are and say, okay, what is it that you're comfortable doing, but not colluding with their denial or their sense, their reluctance to look at the history of their issues. But starting where they are. With kids, you you don't do analytic work. You listen to them, you reassure them, you remind them that this is not your fault and try to provide a space where they can be open and feel secure, even in that short amount of time that you spend with them. I used to work with kids through an agency for a while, a family service agency. And so in my, with my supervisor, I was so frustrated because they said, what can I, these kids come in and they got to go back to their foster mom or back into their home where there's a lot of domestic violence and conflict. So you have, that kid has one hour a week that they have someone that is listening, that is attentive and helping them to decompress. And they will carry that with them and they'll remember that. And that's it because you see them and then they have to go home. And most of the time that they're there, they come there because they're in a stressful home or school environment or both. Wow. So is once a week enough? And I know every situation is different, but with an example that you just gave, does a child hold on to what they gained from, say, a session with you for the entire week? And are you starting from a different place in the next week or you have to go back to square one? I stay with the presenting problem. If they're trying to, if they're not, if they're dealing with academic dysfunction, I try to pick up on how are your grades better? Okay, that's good. You're feeling better about yourself because self-esteem is a big issue with children that are struggling. And once a week usually is, it's not enough. Twice a week is good. During the initial phase of therapy, if it's a real traumatic situation that requires a lot of work, but then once a week is probably is most of what you can get because parents are working. They can't bring them. They have to come after school. Sure. But I always allow them to, especially with kids that are very troubled, 
I give them my phone number and invite them to call me when they're having a bad day, when they have a moment, if they are feeling that they want to run away or do something to harm themselves, to call me and we'll talk about it. So I'm available when I work with kids all the time. I rarely get calls, but sometimes I do, from especially from adolescents. But just knowing that I'm there for them, I think, helps them. I was just going to say that. Yeah, just knowing that there's somebody that you can call if you need to. That's beautiful, Sally. There's been a lot of talk in the last few years in my business, in the food business, about the importance of gut health and its relationship to inflammation. A pediatrician friend of mine just recently published a paper about the connection between gut health and brain health. Are you starting to look at anything like that? Are you, what we eat affecting our brain and how we think? And is there a connection between the gut and the brain? I've seen it from time to time. I, I read some certain articles about it. I think there is a connection. I always say that what we eat nurtures our body and nurtures our brain. When we're eating better, less carbs, less sugar, we feel better because it goes throughout our body. I know that with digestive problems, a lot of it stems from internalized stress, aside from the genetic factor, right? There's some people that inherit that gene from their parents, but a lot of people that don't have an outlet, you know, can't have conversations with people like, what you said really bothered me, it's internalized, that leads to a lot of inflammation in the, I believe, in the intestinal system. I think there's a direct connection. Because when people have these problems and they're in therapy, one of the things that improves is the issues with the stomach. Interesting. And what about the importance of sleep, meditation, spirituality? Do these things factor into mental well-being? Yes. Yes. Sleep deprivation leads to a lot of anxiety, inability to focus, attention deficit. Sick is whatever helps you to relax. Sometimes it's some people go to church and they feel good afterwards, that's fine. Social outlets, walking, exercise is really good because it helps to helps one to somewhat decompress, to relax, and the adrenalines that you get. The endorphins. That, yeah, the endorphins that are tapped into that leaves you feeling settled, even though you have things that are unresolved. I know that hiking does that. Nature, the combination of nature and exercise. Yes, yes. It's, it's the resolution is being surrounded by something that's very calming, very reassuring, and it's always available to us. For free. Yeah. You walk down, your problems, you still have to pay the bills, but you say, you know what? It's not the end of the world. I'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, let me take a hike. Yes. So Sally, it's generally thought that for men, particularly black men, there's a stigma associated with seeking help for mental health. I'm curious, has that been the case with your practice? And if so, aside from the stigma of appearing weak, why do you think that is? What is it about us guys that make us so slow to ask for help for our heads? I think guys are less emotional than women. And they need to feel empowered, omnipotent, and that I don't have to. I hear that a lot. I don't have to talk to anybody about this. I know some direct ways to handle it, but they're usually counterproductive. Coping with substance abuse as a way to not look at the issues. I think it's lessening in the Black community. It's something that I have been addressing, and really, when I was I did my graduate studies at USC, I wrote a paper, like a 50-page paper, on psychological stress in the African-American community 
and how it's associated with homelessness, with violence and self-destructive behavior, and that it's often not diagnosed or underdiagnosed because it's defined as sociopath, sociopathic behavior. Like, oh, people don't want to work. I don't really buy that. I think everybody needs to feel, have a sense of purpose and to feel productive. But people get so worn down that they become hopeless and they just don't see how it could benefit them. Depression is underdiagnosed in African-American populations because there are people that see depression as related to people that are intelligent, very intelligent. With the stereotype of African-American populations being less intelligent, we don't have severe depression. We can't connect the dots. So yeah, I wrote a paper about that. And so I've always wanted to address, I feel like the homelessness, the substance abuse, the people that when you drive around, you see them sitting on the corner. I always think these people are really hurting. They're not there to party. They're not always wanting to get high, but this is a way to cope with their menial existence. Wow. I also know as a man myself, we often put off things that are health related, <clears throat> which often only means the condition gets worse. My, my bum knee, it's not getting any better. It's not going to replace the cartilage. It's only going to get worse, but I'll keep doing the same stuff. But I feel that pain. I feel that hurt. I know my, when my knee hurts. How would someone know when it's time to seek mental health? There's no symptom that's a physical pain symptom. How do you know when you're not balanced mentally and you're not where you should be in terms of your mental well-being? Starting with sometimes frustration, feeling sad, placing emotions and feelings onto someone else, the other person, partners or spouses in their lives that they are projecting onto blame. And the reason I'm not happy is because you're doing this or you're doing that. A lot of times it takes someone else in your life to say, have you thought of going to therapy? It's often something that is resisted. Yeah. And especially with African-American men. And so I, I interestingly have always had a pretty sizable population of African-American men, as well as other ethnicities, white men, Latinos, I try to use disarming techniques where they're not so resistant and they're less concerned. They normalize emotional issues. You're human. Life is always going to present difficulties with us. It's great to have someone to talk to if you just want to come in and vent for an hour, which some people, sometimes people do. Sometimes they want to look more in depth at how they are interpersonal relationships. That is one of the situations that bring men to therapy, whether it's work-related or domestic, at home with children, with spouses, family members, all of that and more. We're told that the cliche, what doesn't kill you will only make you stronger. Obviously, I get the sentiment here that we learn from our mistakes, but life conditions like, say, living in poverty seem to run contrary to that reasoning. Living in poverty... I don't know that makes you stronger. What, how do you view that? That's a very good point. I don't think that it does make you stronger. I think that the concept of perseverance and working towards living a better life, finding being resilient, always being resourceful to look for outlets and opportunities to move beyond the situation immediately. It's Poverty is a very, it's, I, don't, I, I don't really know how 
you get beyond that. For children, there's always the opportunity of growth and getting out of that situation through education, workshops, meeting a mentor that tell you that you have value and that it can change. As you get older, you have more control and more power. But that's a difficult situation. Yeah. Yeah. On kind of a broad subject here, when we have a, a racially motivated incident like Buffalo, we know there's more to that story than the lone wolf, that there's actually an ideology at play here. It's not a new one, this concept of this replacement theory idea. The last mass shooting of this kind was in a church. This was a market, places where Black folks are gathering. Clearly, the Flames are being fanned here. The racial animosities is those fans are being flamed. I'm curious, what do you think that does to the collective consciousness of African-Americans? I think as a restaurant owner and what my clientele is targeted, if a place is targeted, it raises your level of anxiety and you're aware of what's going on in this country. How do you view that, Sally, in terms of our collective consciousness? It's very difficult but you address it through reminding ourselves to be resilient, looking at historical issues and situations where people had absolutely no power. You were always subjected to being with slavery. There was no sense of security. Talk about living in the moment. That's your only option. Whatever that moment of joy is, you embrace it, you grab it, and you hold on to it because that can help to build resilience. But in terms of today's world, I have a lot of empathy for the situation. Black women as well, but mostly black men just seem to be targeted. It's always looking over your shoulder, never able to relax, transferring some of that stress that you go through, just driving in the neighborhood or down the street to your family, to your wife, not knowing how to uh, decompress, not knowing how to process. I think just being able to talk about it and realizing that we as a group, we, we as a community have support within that community. I think church provides a lot of that religious affiliation and activities. Some people don't necessarily believe in that because it's hard to believe the concept of if you do good things will happen because we see that not consistent and people's lives being taken. And families are left with this hole in their lives because someone was taken unfairly. So how do you learn to live with injustice and fear is you have to continue to walk through it. And I think cover all the, you don't want to be vigilant. You don't want to walk out the door every day and think, okay, what can happen today? You go out feeling optimistic that things can come up and you don't personalize it. You don't mm -hmm. take it to mean that we don't have any value or worth because that's how it appears when people are shot randomly by police or like that situation in Buffalo where people are just marketing and someone comes along and decides to kill them. Horrible. And I guess too, you have to take all the things that you just said into consideration so that you're not walking out of the door ready to react. You're not in react mode. Right. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I think that gives you, that's more empowering. When people appear to be threatening or they're insulting or, you know, just doing hurtful things is to rise above it. Sometimes you have to react, 
but in an appropriate way, and then let it go, walk away from it. I have someone now that I'm working with that's, anyway, he does a lot of things in Hollywood. He was asking me, how do you deal with racism? Because I guess he deals with it a lot within that community. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, there's no way to deal with it. First of all, don't let them tell you who you are. Don't let them tell you that you're worthless and you're unintelligent and you have no value, because I don't buy into that. That's not true. I said, secondly, I've learned to say, oh, okay, so this is how you're behaving. Maybe you're racist, but you know what? That's your problem. Mm-hmm. I don't have this sense of myself in terms of how you see me. You have to adjust your vision and reality. I'm going to be me. I like that, reflecting that back to them and or deflecting it back to them and saying, this is your issue. This is not my issue. You mentioned Hollywood. And I know you practice in Beverly Hills. And of course, we know the entertainment industry is the prominent industry in Los Angeles. I'm curious, are the mental health challenges in a place like LA where wealth and status are on display, are they different than in other parts of the country? I don't know where else you may have practiced or who else you talk to around the country, but it just seems to me like there's a specific kind of recipe to life in Los Angeles that might produce a different kind of mental health challenge for some folks. Do you find that with the keeping up with the Joneses aspect? Yes, yes, yes. Sense of entitlement, always wanting to, always comparing themselves to others. I don't find that they're, some of the Hollywood people that I've worked with, they're not willing to look deep within themselves and take responsibility or try to look at their, maybe their perspective is inaccurate to offer them a different perspective of ways to look at things. They usually, they, I guess I'm generalizing, but they just want you to agree with them that somebody else is blame for not getting a part. The people are against me. They don't like me. Kind of surface issues. And when you offer that, let's speak more about this. Let's look at what we call cognitive distortions. They want to hold on to that because for some reason that buffers them from taking responsibility. I think we all have to take responsibility for our participation in whatever situation is causing stress and creating some type of psychological trauma it's like how did i sign up for this what did i walk into how was i programmed to encounter one person after the other that is treating me poorly and talking to me and condescending and all of that so getting people to look at their what they bring to the table their expectations. That's an interesting term, cognitive distortion. I can think of a million times when, when conversation with someone, you're thinking, you just see this incorrectly. That's not quite what you're talking about, but how we perceive what others are doing to us, is that kind of heading in the right direction? Yes, exactly. Anticipating that, characterizing that person as being what aggressive or condescending or and to offer another way of uh, another perspective. Okay, so maybe that person had a bad day. Maybe they were angry for a week and the boss was yelling at you. If you're not living up to your expectations, that's one thing. But if it's random and it's coming at you, then you have to assume there's something else going on with that person and you just put on your body equipment and know that at the end of the day, you don't have to deal with it. Some people go to human resources. That's not always effect- helpful. 
because human resources generally represent the company. Mm. I, I think it was established to help employees, but most of the time I've dealt with people that go to human resources and they get demoted or end up leaving the job and they find out to their great disappointment and sometimes very painful to recognize that well, I trusted you. I thought you were there to help me. But now I see that you're just there to quiet the waters until you can figure a way to move me out so I won't be noisy. Wow, that's sad. So as we wind down or get close here, I'm curious, Sally, as someone who hears the challenges that people face on a daily basis, and it's what you do for a living, I've always found you to be like super mellow, super chill, quick to smile, quick to laugh, just this very even temperament. And I know you've touched on some of the things you do, you're hiking and all this, but what? how do you keep balance? How do you quiet your mind when you need to? Yes, that's very important. I do hiking, walking on the beach as of late, traveling. You have to, you can't do it day in and day out. I have done that, but it starts to impact your own well-being. If you're not mindful, if you're not aware of it, you don't get as much sleep concerned about overbooking or forgetting and people that show up and you go, oh, wow, I had an appointment with you. I'm sorry. So I do that. I travel and I do things that I enjoy doing. I enjoy seeing other cultures, seeing new things, new activities, social. I have a pretty active social life. It's kind of hard to manage with a very active work schedule, but somehow I managed to squeeze it in or to work it in. So I maintain relationships with friends. And frequently, I don't really talk. I never do, really. We have colleagues that we know that sometimes it's helpful to have them to consult with about the situation that may be new or something that you're not sure where to go. But my social life doesn't really involve people in my specialty in the mental health field. If you end up talking about it, and you're still at work. So socially, physically. I can imagine in any situation, any conversation with someone who has a certain expertise, like in this case, yours, any conversation can veer towards from a sommelier. We might be drinking wine and all of a sudden I'm espousing on my knowledge about wine. Do you find that friends sometimes under the guise of Sally, let's have lunch. <laughs> they, they really want to take advantage of a free Dr. Greg's session. What, how do you suss that out? Sometimes you find out in the middle of the event, whether it's lunch or dinner or drinks, and I'm a good listener. I can listen. And then there's a point where I say, I can give you some referrals. Maybe you should talk to someone about that. Sometimes I'll even offer some advice, but I try to not because then you don't want to have those dinners and lunches when you recognize that someone is trying to get something from you other than social interaction but yeah no it does happen a lot that's why i started doing hiking therapy i did that for a while because i would go hiking with friends and i realized that 10 minutes into the hike i'm hearing everything about their present and past stress and unhappiness and it gets exhausting because i can't really enjoy my hike they are very open things that you wouldn't hear at the dinner table there's something about walking and focus on trying to get up that hill that releases your inhibitions and you open up. So I decided I would do that for therapy and it was effective. But then you have a schedule, a session scheduled for five o'clock at the end of the day and you feel like, I don't know if I feel like hiking now. So it becomes muddy, murky. 
it, it, it requires physical activity and not just sitting and listening. And then your old friend invites you to do his podcast and talks to you primarily about mental health. There you go. <laughs> I'm guilty too. <laughs> well, given that this is Mental Health Week and you never get away from it with everything that's happening in the news and even in the community, it's always there. You're always interpreting things, always trying to look at the other side. No, it's fine. It's good. All right, good. You're not mad at me. Oh, <laughs> I know that you and, and Dr. Greg downsized recently and I just remember your beautiful art collection, and I'm wondering if you have good wall space where you are Not now. much. <laughs> so where's all the art? In storage in LA. So we have two places now that we're living in for the time being. And there's a lot of art that's still there and art that was shipped here. I didn't even know that it was being shipped here. Lloyd had it all packaged and sent to storage. And then we brought part of the storage here it came with a lot of art, so we're trying to find spaces for it. And at the same time, we go to these art galleries and you see some wonderful pieces, local pieces, that speak to you and you want to buy more. And I said, no, we don't have any place to use or to put things now, so let's don't get more. It's very tempting. So you and Lloyd have a very inclusive circle of friends. I've known you for a long time and have been to parties at your house. In fact, you threw my wife, Linda, and I a little going away party. Thank you very much. Years ago when we decided to take a break from L.A. for a while. And I've met all kinds of people through you and Lloyd. The group around you is always diverse. You've raised two incredible and beautiful daughters and Lloyd, I don't know if there's a kinder, more beloved person than him. So Sally, as you look back on the life that you've lived and that you continue to live, what are you most grateful for? Experiences for someone that came from Dublin, Georgia, to end up at some point in London, meeting Charles and Diane, then just being able to see the world and friendships. I was always that personality that never limited myself to certain groups or I was always adventurous and I still am. I'm grateful for the opportunity to explore. Even in Los Angeles, I have friends from Bel Air and, and then I have friends in the inner city. I like to go and hang there and as long as it's a safe neighborhood. So yeah, I'm grateful to be living in Los Angeles. I like that. And the ability to try and experience new, just new activities culturally. When I went to LA, I started skiing and I skied every year for about 15 years, sometimes twice a year. And I would go by myself because I didn't know anybody that wanted to ski. All my friends that were my age were scared. They never did it. I don't want to be cold. So when I really wanted to go, I would just go up to Utah and ski by myself for a couple of days. It was very cool. So I'm grateful for that, that, that I'm pretty much an independent spirit. I love having people around, but if they're not, I can find my way. Well, on that note, and I have to say, I am grateful, as I said before, for Norm and Debbie introducing us and that we've remained friends all these years. So Sally Greg, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and I hope to see you and Lloyd and toast you two on your 50th 